one of the issues we struggle with in critical care is when we talk through families' requests and home teams' requests for admission to critical care, but we feel that as an intensive care service, either the patient may not benefit from what is being offered or what is being offered is inappropriate for a host of other reasons. Do you have any examples of difficult case with specific regard to admission to critical care that you have been involved in? I think I'd prefer to take a broad brush. Um, But if I had to highlight one case, it would be the issues that arose after referral of a practitioner to the GMC with regards to a decision that they had made in the small hours of the morning after a telephone discussion with the on-call registrar. The brief details being a patient with osteogenesis imperfecta that had, through the development of um, kyphoscoliosis with degenerative spinal disease, had slowly progressed to type 2 respiratory failure and then presented very acutely, and at the point of decompensation was clearly deteriorating into combined type 1 and type 2 respiratory failure. And on the briefest of details, the consultant took a view that this was not a condition that would respond favourably to critical care, admission and escalation of support with invasive ventilation and he was refused admission on that basis. The natural progression of that condition meant that this individual died shortly thereafter. The problems that arose subsequently was that it was clear that this was a relatively acute deterioration. A decision had been made without reviewing the patient directly, without determining what his circumstances were. This was uh, still someone who was highly functional in a professional capacity, um, had a very young child, and who was not otherwise in a preterminal state. And the issues then that are asked of you is what constitutes a reasonable approach in that circumstance? What is the basic information you need to know before you make a decision of that magnitude? Do those decisions, are they always informed by that background consideration? And that, I think, emphasises the professional vulnerability that we are all under when we make those decisions. I think everyone, every consultant, will have made a decision based on information provided by a registrar on the scene. And do we actually have a structure for how we filter out that information in a rational way and ensure that if something goes the distance, we can actually answer Mm. the basic question, did you ask first of all whether their physiological status was reversible by the interventions available on intensive care? Did you ask whether there were treatment options for what had triggered this particular decompensation? Have you actually discovered anything about that individual's prior quality of life and what they would consider acceptable in the event of survival? Have you actually asked them whether they would be prepared to undergo what intensive care would involve and also what it would involve during the recovery phase, the progression to rehabilitation. You look at that scenario and you think, 
Yes, I think it'd be very difficult for that particular practitioner to say they had ticked all yeah. of those boxes in a way that meant that a decision of this magnitude was robust, was as objective as possible, and ultimately was defensible from, a, from an ethical point of view, from a civil negligence point of view, and from a broader professional responsibility as a doctor. And so I think that highlights the increasing scrutiny that we're under of vulnerability if we don't approach it with a degree of objectivity. And, you know, just as critically, if we as a specialty don't have a clear template for approaching these decisions, then it's very difficult to be critical of the individual practitioner facing those circumstances. I can remember reflecting on that particular case and thinking, there will be a number of practitioners who will say, there but for the grace of God. You then wonder, what are the broader learning points for the specialty? And do you actually then try and derive something which is very objective, very explicit, but then are we expecting professional individuals to just follow a set script for admission and tick off all these boxes and, in a way, then make the whole process less an exercise in professional judgment and more a scripted tick-box exercise? And I think that is where some of the challenges for us lie. As medical professionals, we are expected to exercise professional judgment. We're not expected to be right. You know, there is always the argument, do you follow an algorithm for recurring scenarios? But is it as simple to generate an algorithm that makes these decisions equal for all patients, for all units, for all practitioners? And then if we think about what are the elements that make it a challenge on a day-to-day -day basis, regardless of how our decisions might be evaluated at some point in the distance by some third party, whether it's lawyers or the regulatory body, I think every practitioner will say that a significant proportion of their patients that are being referred, the decisions are made more difficult because there has been no discussion by the parent specialty with those patients or their next of kin. You know, if you look at the patients that have come in for major elective surgery, where it's quite clear because of the nature of the surgery or their comorbidity or their age, there will be a high likelihood of decompensation requiring critical care. And yet, there's been no discussion about it, about values and beliefs for that particular individual. One of the difficulties with critical care patients as a population is somewhere in the reason that over half upon admission lack capacity to make these decisions. And given the acute nature of them, is there an argument then for being defensive in some respect and saying, actually, in the middle of the night, the simple thing and correct thing to do might be to admit this patient? regardless of the full fact-finding, assuming there are no major obvious contraindications or concerns from family members or next of kin? Yes, you could argue that in that scenario where a patient lacks capacity, where you are not able to undertake 
that evaluation of comorbidity, circumstances, expectations, what constitutes a meaningful quality of life in the event of survival, and there is no explicit advanced directive that states that there is a clear wish not to be exposed to any heroic medical interventions, then you could argue that the default should be admission. The problem with that is, I think, you are already then, for certain categories of patient, embarking on interventions which are not innocuous. This is not the same as starting a course of antibiotics and then waiting to see if the cultures come back negative or the CRP or PCT comes back negative. I do think that there are a series of questions that you can ask at any time in any setting. There are obviously ethical, social considerations and justice, if we're being quite frank, and resource implications. And is that something that you were thinking about including in sort of the frameworks you use? I think if we separate out what we should do for the standard patient and then maybe focus in on those more challenging scenarios that do bring up issues such as resource management. And I note that you did pose a question on futility, didn't you? And I think my response to that is, there has been a lot of dialogue about how futility as a term should never be employed in the critical care setting. But it often is. Yeah, um, because, and the criticisms are that it's very much an individual opinion-based, it is value-laden, it does carry a pejorative connotation if you have a next-of-kin actually pursuing a wish for a patient to be admitted in the face of being told about futility. There is an implicit suggestion in there that you as a family are exposing them to some degree of harm. I still believe the term futility is applicable because I think we understand what it means as long as you qualify it with regards to what particular decision you're making. So I think if we take the first question, you know, the the patient who is going to be admitted, they've either got to have a degree of physiological derangement that's beyond ward-based care or predictably going to have a degree of physiological derangement that's beyond ward-based care. And that degree of physiological derangement has got to be one that is reasonably accepted as being responsive to escalation of support. Do you think it might be more useful in those instances to use figures associated morbidities and mortalities? Because statistics are all great, but if you're not one of the cohort described, it means nothing. I don't believe any of the databases are robust enough to come up with a prediction for the individual patient. And I think the degree of confidence that you have in those figures should be left to the fine detail within any discussion. So if you're at the point of saying, we believe that a patient with this degree of physiological derangement, with this comorbidity, at this age, with this underlying triggering condition, and this background degree of disability, is likely, if we had 100 patients admitted in this scenario, 
we are only going to be able predictably to see five of those patients leaving and sustainably getting back to how they were. We don't know whether your relative is in the 95 or the 5. So the question we are asking you is, do you believe your family member would want to go through all of these interventions if it carried that limited opportunity of getting back to how they were? And so that, for me, is how morbidity and mortality should be used. But you think futility is almost the stage before that? Yes, because I think what I think if you ask, are we talking about physiological futility here, i.e. by the time you've got someone who has clearly, and the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, it's uncertain how long they've been down, but your ABG has consistently shown a pH of 6.7 or unrecordable for that period of time. They've, uh, despite being normothermic, got fixed dilated pupils, and you can't get any sustainable return of a spontaneous circulation or rhythm. I think all of us would say then, there is a physiological futility. This patient is beyond the point of reversal. They're beyond the point of stabilization. So I think the first question you should always ask is, is there a physiological futility? The second tier of futility, have we got a treatment option for whatever it is that's brought them in? You know, so if you've got a patient that's decompensated with community-acquired pneumonia, then fine. You know you've got antibiotics, which predictably will have a degree of efficacy. Whereas the patient who has gone into renal failure because of their frozen pelvis, which has been declared inoperable from the advanced cervical malignancy, then there is no treatment option. So I think futility can be qualified, either physiologically or in terms of treatment option futility. So you've got the patient then who you can improve physiologically. You do have a treatment option. But then you've got to ask, looking at the broader picture, can you restore this patient to an acceptable quality of life for them for a sustainable period of time? That's usually referenced in the critical care population with interviews and questions and information from family, friends and next of kin. Yes. Which is part of the difficulty, isn't it? But I think you've got to start with the question, what was their level of function? What was their degree of satisfaction with that? What slippage are we going to see on that? And do we think we are going to get them back to a level which they consider meaningful for a sustainable period of time without undue reliance on intense medical support? And I think, you know, this becomes the qualitative element of futility, becomes an issue not just for the elderly patient with extreme frailty and increasing limitation. It is applied to patients with brain dysfunction, either because they've come in with a degree of dementia and brain dysfunction, or they've come in with new significant brain injury, whether that's vascular, traumatic, infective, hypoxic. 
do we believe we can get this individual back to an existence which they value? And that, I think, that is where the real challenge lies, because we're moving further away from physiological futility. We're moving further away from treatment option futility. It is all about previous quality of life, functionality, values and beliefs, and seeing whether, predictably because of whatever the new critical illness is, there is any likelihood of any restoration of that. And would you say assessment of those factors that you've just talked about could be covered by an umbrella term like best interest? Would that be reasonable or do you think it spans more than best interest in that case? I think best interest incorporates that because best interest has got to look at the best possible outcome for the patient, but it's also got to look at the burdens of what that patient will have to go through to demonstrate that they either have the reserves to get to that recovery point or they don't. And, you know, I think we just view them as a series of interventions, but if we look at them from a patient perspective, It is not just the medical dependency, it's the whole impact on them as a person, the dehumanisation in critical care, the invasion of privacy, the loss of privacy, the total disorientation, the loss of night-day normal sleep, the burden of invasive interventions. And then we think about pathways to recovery. We all know how we bully patients every day through the process of weaning. You know, where we say, right, you're going to be doing more today because that is the only way we're going to get out of here. And so we're going to mobilize you today. And tomorrow we're going to reduce the amount of support you're getting from the ventilator. And yes, it's going to fatigue you. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. But we are putting individuals through a series of burdens. And I think we're very poor at articulating the impact of that for that individual and for assessing them. You know, if you look at some of our more challenging cohorts of patients, the 30-year-old with cerebral palsy, who has been sort of increasingly struggling from a respiratory point of view because of kyphoscoliosis and vulnerability to recurrent infections, and who has reached the point of being in combined type 1 and type 2, you can predict that they are not going to wean without a tracheostomy, but you're having that internal discussion. How is an individual, and you know, maybe cerebral palsy is probably the wrong example because clearly there's a whole spectrum of cognitive function within that group. But for any individual with compromised cognition and therefore cooperation and compliance, how do you expect those individuals to understand the rationale for a weaning programme? And therefore, are we just ultimately going to be exposing individuals to something that's incredibly distressing that they don't understand, that ultimately this is the pathway they need to go down to ever stand any chance of getting out of hospital? You know, we look at what actually makes decision-making even more complex. And 
we've got parent specialties that have never broached the subject of end of life. You know, mm. even though we've had end of life guidance from the regulatory body from the new millennium emphasizing that any clinicians with any responsibility to patients with ultimately terminal conditions should be having that dialogue about choices. Yeah. And yet we know that those even patients, you know, with incurable and progressive neurological conditions, you know, the MNDs, the the MSs, the the Parkinson's, there's no prior discussion with them. And the parent specialties don't want to be broaching the, the subject of bad news. They don't want to be the one that's alienating the patient or the family. They don't want to be the one that's construed as He's thought our life is not worth living. And I think when you look at the more challenging patients, there is a whole additional tier of complexity that's been added because we are the first ones to be explaining we're potentially or probably in a preterminal state here. This is decompensation as an inevitable endpoint sort of on the similar theme, what do you think about admission with caveats or admission with limitations? For example, some of the elderly people we have admitted have a sort of a plan that for vasopressor therapy, non-invasive ventilation, but not beyond that point, escalation of therapies. Do you think that a reasonable strategy? I think if you stood back, you would say that every ICU admission is as much a test as it is a treatment. I mean, all you're doing in critical care is normalising key systems and seeing whether the patient, either if there's a surgical intervention for surgical pathology that's triggered the decompensation or a medical condition such as infection, you're waiting for time and mother nature impact of antibiotics to address the triggering pathology. But you are seeing whether this individual responds favourably to that provision of care. So if we go back to what we're saying, looking at morbidity and mortality and whether outcome figures help you in deciding, I would say what you are doing with intensive care is getting a picture of whether this particular patient, having embarked on critical care admission and interventions, whether they're in the 95 group or the 5 group. We said we don't know when they come in, but if they don't respond favourably from a physiological perspective or suffer some new complication, then slowly but surely they are edging towards being defined in that 5%. And so do I think it's reasonable to put limits? Yes, because... If we take the simplest example, the elderly patient with pneumonia that's progressing, so then you say, we look as though we are now going to be in this 5%. We are still not approaching the degree of 100% confidence. So what we do is we escalate to non-invasive support. If the patient deteriorates despite that, 
then again, we are getting into, I think, higher degrees of certainty because if they're not responding to the test of ICU, then by definition, they are approaching that cohort of patients with the likelihood that they will not survive regardless of full escalation. The question you have to ask yourself is what degree of certainty do you need to have as a practitioner to make a decision of this magnitude? Historically, I would say, as a consultant, you are paid to be decisive, to take decisions of some significance. You're not paid to be infallible. But do the general public expect us to be infallible? Do they expect us just to default to defensive medicine? Which would be admit everyone, yeah. do everything, but at what cost? Well, the personal costs, we never know because we don't explore them. If we look at how the uptake of advanced directives in this country with regards to critical care provision, what would you say? Virtually negligible. Yeah. And what about in, say, those states, you know, in America where those are, you know, lawfully applicable and they are endorsed by the state? I would say because of the associated financial cost, maybe 10%. Well, no, it's even less than that in single figures. And, And what is interesting is if you interview families with regards to an advanced directive, they actually don't want something to be so binary and so prescriptive. And they expressed a view that what they would like is what can only be defined as benign paternalism. They would want a doctor from a position of neutrality having a reasoned discussion with the family if they were in the position where they lost capacity and reaching a decision at that point rather than having a very fixed view So I think we are in a bit of a cleft, really, because I think there are clearly patients who there is just so much to accommodate with regards to what does intensive care mean. You know, I would argue, how can you expect the public to understand what intensive care provision means when most of our referring specialties don't understand what it means or it involves or what the outcomes are from it? And in those circumstances, should we be exercising benign paternalism? Should we be steering families in a certain direction based on our experience, beliefs, and ultimately going through those questions, physiological futility, treatment option futility, qualitative futility, asking ourselves, what's our degree of confidence with regards to each of those? And ultimately saying, this is where I believe we are in each of these domains. And the question for you is, we can put a patient through all the interventions of intensive care, but that does come at a personal cost for them in terms of the invasiveness, the distress, the discomfort, the whole endurance that's required to wean and subsequently rehabilitate. So it's not putting the responsibility back on the family or the patient. It's not, therefore, avoiding any personal responsibility and avoiding any of the fallout from that, you know, the complaints, the recrimination, because you've not taken an autocratic decision. 
my view is that given that it is highly unlikely that any individual will have been able to foresee what it means to go through a critical care journey at any stage in their life and how that is going to affect them, that you do need benign paternalism. So is it about figures? Is it about accuracy? Is it about infallibility? No, I think it's about honesty. I think it's about taking families through that structure. It's about exploring their values and beliefs. It's, if possible, getting a picture of what constitutes a meaningful quality of life and then actually using your professional experience and expertise to offer an opinion as to whether that is achievable. I know we've covered lots here and actually taken the question that on the face of it sounds relatively simple and we've explored it in detail and there are clearly many facets to it. But for the more junior doctors, for those doctors on nights assessing patients in these circumstances we've described, what one bit of advice would you want them to think of when assessing and making these decisions before calling their more senior colleagues? I think the algorithm, if there is such a thing, is actually quite simple. It goes back to those series of basic questions. Is there a derangement of physiology that's beyond ward-based care? Is it a derangement that is going to be responsive to escalation beyond ward-based care? And are we confident that it's not beyond restoration? Second tier of questioning relates to treatment options. What is the triggering pathology for this decompensation? Is it the end stage of an untreatable terminal disease such as Mm. disseminated malignancy? so that even if we can stabilise them physiologically, we're still not going to be able to achieve survival over the longer term. If we have theoretically a treatable pathology, is this patient's quality of life acceptable prior to this decompensation? And are we likely to be able to get them back to that quality of life? And how are we going to gather information with regards to that? And having gone through those three tiers of questions, how confident are we with regards to our answers? What degree of confidence do the patient or their family want when they are being involved in a decision of this magnitude? And then, the final decision, having had this internal debate ourselves, when we're discussing, therefore, the potential benefits from intensive care, we also have to set out what the burdens of intensive care are in terms of what it will translate into. The invasiveness of procedures, the invasiveness of monitoring, the catheterizations, the loss of privacy, the challenges of weaning, the tracheostomy, the struggle that someone mm. will have all set against the background, age and comorbidity, degrees of frailty, disability, etc. Are we able, in the short time we have, to have a discussion on those benefits and burdens and therefore ask the patient whether this is something you want to embrace or ask the family, is that something you want to embrace? If you can't reach any decision at that time or you're being forced into making decisions because you haven't got access to that information, the default has got to be to apply those interventions. 
And then what you're doing is explaining to the family that ultimately all we're doing is normalizing various systems of the body and seeing whether they've got enough physiological reserve in the first instance to accommodate this critical illness and recover, whether we've got something that's treatable, and ultimately whether we can get them back to their previous quality of life. So it's a test rather than a treatment. And therefore, we will have to keep evaluating how they're responding to that test. I don't think you can put that down into some sort of template to be ticked off. It's a, it's a broader exercise in professional judgment. Mm-hmm.